Hi, I'm Carissa Schlott. And I am Sharice Schlott. Welcome to Between Between Us, a podcast that highlights our relationship as sisters, providing a safe space to share our stories. These conversations highlight unity and connection, the through lines that connect all of us as human beings. Before we dive in, we would like to highlight that the views expressed in each episode are a product of our own research and experiences. Our opinions are not representative of any professional affiliations we may have. Hello, hola, listeners, friends. This is episode 16, which will be a two-part series again, as it was an in-depth conversation with our new friend, Eric Teplitz. Eric Teplitz resides in the real LA, Los Angeles, And he is a life enthusiast who routinely undertakes challenging endeavors that intrigue him and impel him to grow. Eric is a personal coach who is passionate about helping others to open themselves up to a more expansive sense of what is possible, overcoming resistance to following their interests, passions, curiosities, and dreams, and achieve a greater sense of meaning, purpose, and life satisfaction. As the conversation unfolds, I'm sure you'll witness Eric's deep curiosity about life He is very well versed in in numerous topics, and this is explained by some of his interests, which include hiking over 500 miles on the Appalachian Trail, completing an Ironman triathlon, volunteering hundreds of hours in the hospital performing music for patients, and he's the author of over 100 posts on Eric's Inspired Living blog. So please help me give a warm welcome to Eric Teplitz. It's great to be here. Eric, I just have to say, I feel like you are a kindred spirit. I was reading some of your writing and I feel like just our orientations are very similar. What we've been drawn to has been very similar. So I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So we always start with stories, of course. And so can you just tell us to start a little bit about your childhood? Yeah, my childhood was a pretty happy childhood. I grew up in Philadelphia. Pennsylvania, for those who have never been. There is actually a a Philadelphia, Tennessee, I think, or there are other Philadelphias in the world. So I grew up in a city environment, but sort of within the city limits, but just on the borders of suburbia. And it was a pretty good place to grow up because I could, you know, go to my friends' houses. They were either within walking distance or biking distance. And I grew up in a stable household with loving parents. And so that's good, right? (laughs) Always. But yet we're not immune to problems. (laughs) No, and it's interesting because sometimes I think kids, for instance, like, you know, my parents, we were talking about this just before we started recording. My parents, like yours, are still together. So, you know, they're pretty happily married going 54 years plus now. I'm not saying that I would uh, trade places with anyone. But what I did observe, like growing up, I would say at some point, maybe as a teenager, is that kids who had who came from households with divorced parents, you know, they obviously were more troubled in some ways, I suppose, or, or you know, uh, had more difficulties and challenges, or at least of that particular kind. Uh, again, I w- I'm not saying I would trade places, but I, I do think that living in a in a bubble that's pretty protected and contained does have some disadvantages because I experienced what I used to refer to as uh, a rude awakening in my teenage years where the world that I thought 
existed was proving itself to not be so much like I thought it was. And because I lived in a fairly protected and sheltered bubble, mm. I think it disturbed me a lot more than it did other people. Like other people were like, yeah, of course people do drugs. Like, duh. <laughs> to me, it was a shock. Like, oh my God, people that I know have smoked pot. Anyway, our challenges can, um, can make us more resilient. That said, you know, having a, a good, safe, stable foundation in life is for sure beneficial as well. Yeah, I feel very fortunate as well to have, you know, a family who, who are still very close. And when you were saying that, thank you for saying it so eloquently, all of the little hairs on my arms were standing up because I think that what you've picked up there is so interesting about how when you have sort of a sh that sheltered <laughs> or protected lens, in your formative years, how that when you get into the real world, <laughs> you're left wondering like, whoa, like how, how did I miss out on all of these things? And what, this happened? So interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that too. The image that comes to my mind is like pulling the fish out of the water bowl, right? Or pulling the fish from the fish bowl. And I had, I would say I had a very similar experience to what you described, Eric. I guess what I was thinking is, it was equal parts like I had this desire or drive to learn and to see more and to experience the world. But at the same time, it was so frightening. You know, I just it's funny because like when I think back, you know, in some ways I had uh, I was incredibly fortunate and had such tremendous um, advantages just growing up in a loving home, a loving household, that alone, and, you know, having a, a sense of stability in where I grew up. I think that that's, you know, tremendously fortunate. This idea of the rude awakening, though, it is interesting to me because I feel like it's a universal experience. It, you know, it may happen to people at different ages or stages of life, but I feel like it's inevitable. And maybe other kids growing up experienced it earlier than I did. And, and, and therefore, maybe, I don't know, were more well-adjusted at that stage, you know, teenage years, although who knows, who knows, you know, what, what individuals experiences are like, but I do think that, you know, if you stick around long enough, you will be disillusioned and that's not always a bad thing. You know, disillusioned means having your illusions challenged and, and taken away. So we all at some point have to confront reality <laughs> in, in its uh, glorious messiness. I was curious, how were your teenage years, Eric? Uh, I would not relive them. <laughs> I wouldn't choose to. Um, you know, they weren't all terrible. For me, the highs and lows were pretty extreme. I think that for particularly, I'm thinking of ages 15 and 16 were especially difficult ones for me personally. And some of that had to do with what I was just describing, like feeling disillusioned with the reality as I was seeing it and, and how different it was from my worldview prior to that. So that was a really difficult time for me, emotionally, very difficult. And I'm just curious, I don't know if you're okay going there, but what did that look like for you? Mm -hmm. I was really depressed and angry a lot. So, I mean, I think outwardly, I was very functional and even perhaps cheerful, at least, you know, on the surface. And I, I was high functioning. I mean, I, I did well in school, but I definitely had a different relationship to school because prior to that age, I really believed in school. And what I mean by that is that you're supposed to work as hard as you can and get the best grades that you can. And there's sort of this promise that if you do that, everything will be great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And what I noticed was, because I worked really, really hard, and I was like this sort of straight-A student up to a point, but what I started noticing around, you know, those teenage years, uh, starting at around, I would say, 14, is that 
it didn't seem like the work that I was putting in was paying off. And what I mean by that is that, yes, I was getting the grades, but it seemed to me I wasn't necessarily learning any more than other people were for all of my efforts. And also there were ways in which I felt mm, unsuccessful and specifically, I, I would say socially, right? Like girls, for instance, relationships with girls, I mean, it was just like terrifying to me. <laughs> and there was a, an, an ease that I did not feel. And I, and I sort of observed that other people, at least on, on the, from the outside looking in on the surface, seemed to be more kind of socially able, astute, what have you. Mm -hmm. And I felt, I felt disillusioned by school. I felt like school had let me down. Not that school is supposed to um, help you thrive in your personal relationships, although I think it would be nice if there were some aspect of education that did. I think it's kind of a crucial life skill. But I have a very specific memory that's coming to mind. So I'm the straight A student, right? And I, I had what was called a, a computer class or a high technology class at the time, which is laughable by today's standards. <laughs> But I remember that we had this final project to do for this class. And my average in the class was exceedingly high. Like, I don't know what it was. And so I just did the math. I did the calculation based on the weight of the project and how it would affect our grade. And I calculated that I could literally not do the project and I would still have an A in the class. And so it just was like a logical thing to me. It's like, well, then why do it? Why bother? Like, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> the teacher was just stunned. And I remember her calling me over maybe after class one day with this really grave look of concern on her face and saying, Eric, you know, is everything okay you know, at home? Or, like, you know, is it? And I'm like, yeah, things are fine. You know, is anything like going on? Anything new? And I said, well, I, I got, I just got a job, which I was really excited about because I was working in, a, in my local record store, which was like a dream job. I was probably the envy of like my peers at that stage in life. Maybe the only time I've ever been the envy of my peers in regard to my job. <laughs> It was a pretty young age. Like I was, you were supposed to be 16 to be able to work. You had to get working papers if you were younger than that, which I did. So I was, you know, 14 still, I think. And I'm working in this record store. It was a pretty, pretty sweet gig. And music was my passion. It was heaven. I was literally in the store so much as a customer that the manager just kind of offered me a job. So, you know, that was like a, a new sort of uh, wrinkle in my, in my life, but my attitude changed drastically and it really alarmed my parents, I think, because up till then I had been this sort of, I mean, you'd have to talk to them to get their take on it, but I think I was rather a pleasure to raise up till that point. So, and then all of a sudden I, I adopted this very rebellious attitude, particularly towards school. Now I still had this internal kind of standard for myself. Like it, now it was, it was before it was like completely unacceptable to get anything less than an A. And now I relaxed that to a B was fine, but my attitude was way different. It was like, you know, I'm putting in the least amount, of, unless I'm interested, then I'm, I'm there. But if it's something that I just have to do for a requirement and I don't care about it, I'm not going to invest myself in it. I At that point in time, music was, was pretty like much overtaking me as a passion. And it was as much time as I possibly could allow for music would go to music and screw school. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I think even for myself, certainly not until high school or maybe the beginning years of university, where I also kind of saw it as a bit of a game. Mm -hmm. And I was somebody that fortunately didn't have to work very hard. Sharice, by contrast, dedicated so much of her time to school. Also brilliant, also a straight A student. But I witnessed her working really hard for those grades. 
And I viewed it as a game of like, how little effort can I put in to to get the A that I want? Yeah. I remember in college being introduced to this idea of uh, the law of diminishing returns, which is sort of the only business concept that that made sense to me. (laughs) And I was like, yes, exactly. Like there's a point at which it's not worth working any harder because... You already have a B and to get the A, you'd have to invest like way more effort and it like wasn't worth it. So the law of diminishing returns. And I I totally uh, share that experience of it being like a game. I felt like I was good at school. I knew how to be good at school, but I didn't feel like that was necessarily all that much of a life skill. Yeah. And it probably didn't feel as meaningful, especially in contrast to your growing passion for music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Again, I was still intellectually curious. And I think I was probably somewhere in between you and and Sharice in terms of school coming easily to me versus working hard. In some ways, it did come somewhat easily. And in in other ways, I did work hard. I think both were true for me. But I kind of had this ability to procrastinate till the absolute last minute and then like write a paper at the last minute after like being in agony and then getting a better grade than people who had like worked really hard, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's just interesting. And I don't have any answers as far as solutions as to how to improve the education system. You know, because everything is metric based. Prove your knowledge and education through, you know, very measurable metrics and grades and standards. And I just feel that in a lot of ways that that does a disservice to people. But I find this topic really interesting. Sharice and I actually just the other day were talking about how cool it would be if in school, they also integrated more of that sort of emotional intelligence spiritual intelligence, practical life skills (laughs) into everyday education. It seems like it would be great. And yet I also know it could backfire. And what I mean by that is, and again, I have no answers here. I'm just speaking from personal experience and thoughts and feelings about this. I know that, for instance, one of the best things that school can do is to foster a sense of curiosity and to light a fire under people to be curious about the world. Like, I think that's one of the primary things that school could do to serve whoever the student is, child or adult, is to really like fuel our natural curiosity about the world and introduce us to things and get us um, expand our, our worlds and our points of view. And one of the ways in which school does and can do this, reading is, is so crucial to this, I think. And so the the sort of paradox is that school tries to turn kids on to reading. And they do this by introducing great works of literature, for instance. And sometimes that works. But I think more often than not, or at least as often as not, it doesn't because it becomes this burdensome obligation. I remember it's like, you must have the first 100 pages read by Friday. And it's like, really? But school clearly worked to some degree for me because I have become a lifelong reader. Mm -hmm. But I just remember that sometimes the books that I read in school were, uh, this may sound harsh, but maybe ruined by the fact that I read them in school. I think of a book that, that just absolutely blew my mind, which I did not read in school, which was Brave New World. I remember picking it up because it was of interest to me. But I, I remember reading that very vividly, the summer of 1993. I was not yet 21. Just before I turned 21, I read Brave New World and it blew my mind. I mean, to the point where I was, by the end of it, I was literally shouting out loud as I was reading it. <laughs> and I and I was remember, remember being especially impressed by the fact that the book had been published, like, I think it was 61 years prior to when I was reading it. And if I was having this reaction, reading it 60 plus years after it was published, I couldn't even imagine what it was like for people at the time it was published who, who read it. Cool. Sharice, is there a 
book that's done that for you. Just as you're describing the inherent wisdom that some texts possess, and and honestly, I feel this way about most of the Eastern philosophical books I read, uh, especially like for me, my life changing was the Tao Te Ching by Laozi. Like just, I still, I feel quite emotional when I talk about it because of that very reason, like so historic, but the, the answers are all there. There's like so much truth in it and it's so relatable and it's applicable. It's, it's translated thousands of years. But yeah, that's the thing, right? Like it's this wisdom that still applies and is still incredibly relevant today. And there's something really powerful about that, right? Someone is communicating with you through time, through the ages. And if it still resonates, like that, there's something to that. And who knows, maybe Brave New World wasn't as powerful to readers when it came out as it is to readers now. I don't know. One of the core concepts in that book that was especially intriguing to me was in that society, there was this drug that was widely used called Soma. They would sometimes like spray it into a room if people were getting sort of, you know, agitated or whatever. And Soma was this sort of relaxing, like everything's okay kind of drug. You might think of it as like an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. It worked. It was effective. And the savage, as he's referred to in the book, this character has this uh, debate at the end of the book that's really powerful. And, and what I what I was realizing is that his argument was essentially that freedom, that personal human freedom meant the right to be unhappy because this society was set up and if you think about it, if you have any compassion at all, you want to alleviate suffering, people's suffering. And so it, it's this incredible paradox. If you could alleviate all human suffering, there'd be a price. In that society, you did not have the right to be unhappy. That was not allowed. If you were unhappy, we would take care of that with a drug, essentially. And that concept really blew my mind. Wow, freedom being the right to be unhappy. We don't think of it that way. In fact, we usually think of freedom as the right to, to pursue happiness. No. Well, it's so fascinating. To me, it sounds like to that book, and same with me for the Tao Te Ching, it had a language for our disillusionment. You know, it connected that very thing that we're feeling, we're sensing, we're, we're kind of understanding and we're grappling with, and now it's giving life to that. It's giving us something to connect to. It's and, and for me, that's what it is, too. I'm like, there's some truth here that I really connect with. And how I see it is it's almost philosophical. I think what I see in common between you, the two of you, Sharice and Eric, is that you are very macro thinkers and very philosophical. I think that's so cool that for both of you, it was like, oh, permission to live another way or like all of the answers that I've been looking like I've known to be true intuitively, but there they are in a book. But what's interesting is for me, I would say I'm more a bit more micro. The two books that changed my world were both things that helped me unlock things inside of myself. The first being Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, which was really teaching me how to use my mind and my thought a bit more efficiently. And the second was Glennon Doyle's Untamed, because I realized I was limiting myself by my belief and my desire to be a good girl and to be what society wanted me to be which meant I was quieting this inner warrior <laughs> and not letting her fully come to the surface to say what you needed to say. I find that so interesting. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, Eckhart Tolle, in fact, I read that and A New Earth many years ago now. What's impressive to me with books is 
if you can remember something about a book many years later, even if it's just one thing, then that's that's pretty significant. The quote that comes to my mind from Eckhart Tolle was from A New Earth, and I remember it really striking me. He said something to the effect of, anytime you feel either superior to or inferior to another person, that's your ego. And I remember thinking, um, well, we get the first part of that, right? Like we think of egomaniacs as as feeling like having the superiority complex. But I never thought about the fact that if you have an inferiority complex or if you're feeling inferior to someone, that that's your ego. And your ego broadly being defined as your false self that you identify with as you. That was a really profound idea when I encountered that. Yeah, I so agree. But I was just going to say, I was fortunate enough to see Eckhart Tolle live in Calgary a number of years ago. I don't know if that would have been seven or eight years ago now. And something that he was describing about the ego stuck with me as well, which is when the ego can't find something to attach itself to, to make it feel superior, such as I'm smarter than, more successful than, have this social circle, etc. Then it attaches to suffering. So I have suffered more than somebody else. I'm not as good as that person. Therefore, I've suffered more than them. And so I just found that to be so interesting, this idea that, to your point, that it's not just something that that elevates us, but it can actually also be in reverse. Yeah. And much of my journey has been on the reverse side of that, being in the feeling like I don't belong, the victim. And I had that very same moment actually in university with my mentor, And he was saying how being a victim is the other side of the narcissistic scale, right? Like you were saying, it's still a narcissism. And I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) This very thing I despise. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's an empowering idea, though. I really do. Yes. The way I think of it now is that being human is the great equalizer, And what I mean by that is like, I'm not in any way implying or suggesting that we all have equal experiences or equal opportunities or any such thing. Not at all am I saying that. Mm -hmm. But what I mean is that no matter who you are, no matter what your status is, no matter what privileges you've been fortunate enough to enjoy and are enjoying, you know, no matter how much money you have or don't, we all are subject to certain things that are unavoidable unavoidable sufferings that come with the territory of being human. So even if you have all the privileges in the world, you still are mortal. You still are, you know, subject to illness and injury and suffering and losing loved ones. Like no one is immune to this. No one. Yeah. (laughs) I do think that it's really important that we create a more just and equal opportunity society for sure. But I do think that it, it is interesting because we tend to view ourselves in relationship to other people and comparing ourselves to other people for better and or worse, when the reality is we're all humans and we all have our own journeys and experiences. And I also think of it as there's this spectrum of emotional experience that comes with being human with so-called negative or painful emotions to so-called like happy, joyful, blissful emotions and everything in between. And that we all have access to that same spectrum, that same range, regardless of our station in life. So you can encounter people who are dirt poor, who have nothing and are living, you know, in abject poverty. And yet they still have access to gratitude. And there are people who, again, have every privilege in the world that are miserable. And they have access to that. (laughs) It is an interesting thing to think of yourself as as a fellow human to every other human. And you're not better. You're not worse. You are a fellow traveler. 
Yeah, one of the most freeing concepts. I think it kind of stemmed a little bit from from Osho or Begwan Rajneesh, but this idea that we're all pretending. Nobody has figured this thing called life out. (laughs) Some of us are better at pretending than others. That's for sure. And I just love that. That makes me feel so free because it kind of takes away the inferior or superior complex because I'm like, Hmm. you can act as if you have it figured out, but nobody's mastered life. Talking about the teenagers, I remember that that was something that really was upsetting to me at that stage of my life, like 15, 16, where I felt like everyone was putting on a mask Everyone, of course, translating to my small world of high school, (laughs) you know, and like wandering the halls of high school. And I just felt like people are so, they're just pretending to be something. And there's like, yeah, I I craved authenticity and authentic connection. And I just, Mm -hmm. it saddened me and pained me that we couldn't be more real with each other. I don't know. I think teenage years are, they're hard for everybody, right? And we're kind of in this like hot point. Yeah. (laughs) It's like the ultimate social experiment. When we're all in extreme hormonal changes, figuring ourselves out, I think it's challenging for everybody, regardless of where we're located or whatever. The teenage years are explorative and confusing. Mm. Yeah. And from a developmental perspective, that's the shift we make when the adult figures in our life don't hold the mirror anymore. So now we're looking to our peers to hold that mirror to us. And so the people that are holding the mirror to us also are in complete confusion and chaos. And so it's, you know, it's like the definition of insanity, really. Painful. Yeah, it's true. This is true. It's still like that in the adult world, but it just feels more intense. Or for me, it felt more intense at that stage. Yeah, your identity is so fragile and uncertain. This can be the case at any stage in life, but it's just everything's heightened. I think the hormones are a big part of it. I also think the lack of life experience and the tension between being dependent and, quote, you know, striving for independence, but still being dependent. Yeah. You know, there's a wonderful Broadway show called A Chorus Line that I was introduced to because my dad loved musicals and and particularly like a lot of the musicals that came about in the 70s it was kind of a rich time for for shows and so i would i was um, subject to his music collection as a kid growing up which introduced me to some great things that i still love today but before i branched off and discovering my own you know musical tastes the songwriting in a chorus line is absolutely brilliant brilliant just some of the best songwriting i know of and I love I love great songwriting, regardless of genre or what have you. Um, but the, the reason I mention it is that the themes of uh, a lot of the songs uh, are about these dancers and their experiences growing up. And especially there's a song called Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Love, which is all about their experiences. The people auditioning for this chorus in the show share their personal experiences and stories of their teenage years and what it was like growing up, the indignities of, of that, that time of life. And it's, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. It makes me want to listen. But I'm, I'm also thinking of this, Eric and Carissa, because the same with me, my struggle started probably about 14. And then mine took me on a very deep dive into being hospitalized, mental institutions, la di da da You know, this is that that weird human thing where I'm, I'm so grateful it happened at that age. Mm. Because A, it wasn't me making the executive decision. So parents had to make those choices for me. And I realized some people don't hit this until midlife crisis. Some people seemingly probably have some struggles, but maybe don't hit the the full-blown, I can't continue this way until they're much later in life. And I think, wow, that was such a gift to experience it early in life. 
because I know this is setting me up. I know what this is like. Hmm. I've been here. I can walk in this pain. I can be in this pain. I'm guessing it's much easier to feel that way in hindsight, right? <laughs> yeah. Hindsight is 2020. <laughs> and what st- struck me when you said that, sis, is that I think you will be one of very few souls who get to the end of your life and you will have mastered yourself. You will have fully served your soul's purpose, whatever that is on this planet. And you're going to reach the end of your life with no regret. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> mm, beautiful. I think that's the goal if there is one. Yeah, agreed. I don't think I'll ever arrive though, Krosa. I, I appreciate your optimism. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, l- at least allow the possibility, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. I have a, a Chinese mentor, an Asian mother, Auntie Amy, and she said to me, this really struck me, but she said, we can all be Buddhas in, in moments, right? So in those moments of really transcendent mind spaces, we are the Buddha in that moment. And I was like, oh, I've never thought of it that way because I thought I can't achieve that until my ego fully dies, which is death. <laughs> because to me, so long as we're human and we have an ego, that is something I just can't transcend. I love that. That resonates with me. I, and I have a very specific example. <laughs> mm, beautiful. Please share. So being in traffic, I can think of two, this is pre-COVID now, morning commutes to my job. And in one of those commutes, and I I have a visual memory of this, this person was speeding, speeding past me at some crazy driving what I like so recklessly and, and, and frighteningly, right? And I had the presence of mind for whatever reason that particular morning. You know, like my my initial thing was to be just furious and outraged and angry. But I had this moment of presence where it was like, you know what? No one who's at peace is driving like that. And the proper response is, first of all, get the hell out of their way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But also compassion, sending out, may you be at peace. Now, I sound like a Buddha. And maybe in that moment I was, Mm. right? Now, very soon after, I don't know how many days later, I'm doing the same commute. I have this experience just a short way further along my commute where I'm at a traffic light and I'm waiting before I can safely make a left. So I have a green light, but there's oncoming traffic. The guy behind me honking like crazy. I say guy, I think it was. Yeah, no, in this case it was. Honking, 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 as in, come on, (laughs) get going, get moving. I want to make my left and you're stopping me. Now, in this moment, Buddha was nowhere to be found, seen or heard. So I waited until it was safe because I didn't want to die, made my left, (laughs) And before I got to the next light, I stopped my car, you know, not proud of this. I I don't do this a lot, but in that moment, there was no Buddha. I was so furious. I'm like, you want me to risk my life so that you can make your turn. You know, you can arrive a couple seconds early or whatever. And I rolled down the window and blasted. I just (laughs) yelled full throttle. I think I said something like, there's a thing called safety, asshole, like rage, Now, not smart because you never know, honestly. So first of all, who has a gun in their car? Yep. And I wasn't proud of that. We're in Canada. We're a lot friendlier here. You could say that someone probably would give you the bird, but there's a less likely chance that you're going to get shot unless you're in the deep south. Yeah. I was struck by my own reactivity, honestly. I, I wasn't proud of it, but I was so outraged. You know, I was so furious. So anyway, my point in sharing that story is just that I agree with that with your your Chinese mom of there are moments where we have access to that. And the goal, you know, is to we want to cultivate those moments and we want to cultivate ourselves so that we have 
access to those to that presence of mind more frequently. But it's we're human and it's a journey. And I, I don't think that, you know, you ever necessarily fully arrive where you're completely like, you know, where you're untouchable in that way, where you cannot be, you're reactivity free. Like I don't, I'm skeptical that it's possible for a human to be that way all the time. But I do think it's a wonderful aspiration. And I do believe that there are moments, you know, even in kids, I see it. I've seen it maybe even more frequently actually in kids where they just have this presence of mind and perspective. I was just- summarize that. It's almost like transcending whatever's happening. Kids can live so presently in the moment and not bring their own egos or desires to it. They can just experience it and be. And I agree. Like I think to, to live that way, you almost have to transcend one's own humanity, which is near impossible. So a good goal for sure to live live a more mindful life and to be less reactive. But everything that, that you were sharing before, Eric, about curiosity. I wrote that down on, on my paper. Like I sense that you're a very curious person. Endlessly so. And would love to know where your curiosity has taken you or where it took you, I guess, beyond your teen years, what passions you followed. How much time you got? (laughs) To your question, Carissa, wow. I mean, seriously, I think curiosity, while, you know, it, it, quote, killed the cat, I, I do think that it is one of the really important and like wonderful traits to to cultivate in yourself because curiosity leads to growth. Curiosity leads to learning and to growth. If you're not curious, you don't explore and you you don't inquire. You don't really learn anything new. If someone behaves in a way that's off-putting, if you approach it from curiosity, you go, well, why, why are they acting that way? Rather than like taking it personally and getting upset or being insulted or, you know, being annoyed or whatever, which is all very human. But curiosity allows for What's going on with this person in a way that invites like exploration and understanding as opposed to just writing them off? Judgment. Yeah, judgment. Thank you. Yes, right. We all do this. We all judge. I think it's a it's a self-deceit to, to claim you don't. The best I think that we can do is simply amplify our awareness of the fact that we're doing it because that is what allows you to take a moment to pause. Beautiful. I do think it's inevitable. I mean, I do think it is just a Mm -hmm. part of being human that we necessarily do it and it has its evolutionary advantages. It keeps us safe. We have to make judgments. But, you know, there's judgment and there's discernment. Those are very different. The goal is to become more aware of the fact that we are doing it and when we are doing it and just noticing it going, you know what? Judging, you know, meditation could be wonderful for this. Mm Mm-hmm. There are certain meditative practices where you just observe your mind. There's one practice where you just notice and you label. Yes, you're taking away your reactivity to that. Yeah, and and you know when when you meditate, you know typically you're doing this as a practice and like take time in isolation to be with yourself and to do this. Mm-hmm. When I've been able to do it consistently, and I admit that this has been very difficult for me to to do consistently, what it does for me is it increases those moments of awareness when I'm quote off the cushion when I'm just living out, living my life and experiencing my day. It's because I've practiced it. Because then you can come from that place of awareness and then you can make a different decision. That's exactly it. It gives you a small window for choice. So there's space between feeling and reacting. If they could teach that in school, I mean, you know, there's this great quote, I think it was the Dalai Lama, but basically the idea is like, if we, if we taught kids from the age of six or whatever it was, how to meditate then within a couple generations, there'd be no more war. It's some like really dramatic, bold statement. You know, I don't know if it can be proven, but why not try? (laughs) But, you know, at the very least, the spirit of it is very much appreciated. Yeah, I agree. 
And I don't know how you feel about this, but this is something that clicked in for me the other day where I was listening to, I can't remember even what podcast I was listening to it on because I vapidly consume information, but they were saying, we have this misconception as humans that we're operating mind down, but what's actually happening is we're body up. And so we're going through all of our days feeling, experiencing, there's, our body's absorbing everything. And it's only like, I don't know what percentage of our mind that we're actually paying attention to. And so this is why we get to this point where where we have to be in complete burnout or like something really serious has to happen for us. Health crisis. Yes, exactly. To tune into what the body's been experiencing for how long. And I just was like, this is so such a beautiful way to think of it, this body up. That our body's keeping score in a way. Yeah, I'm very guilty of this too. Uh, It takes deliberateness to tune into your body. And I think you're right. I do think that a lot of us, we neglect our bodies until our body's like, guess what? It's crisis time in some way that forces us to pay attention to it uh, because we haven't been. I have a funny story to share. So I had a, a moment where I was trying to transcend my humanness. A couple of weeks ago, I quit my job and I started, I was just preparing to start work at a new organization, which I was so excited about. I was feeling like I was a free bird. <laughs> I was skating on the pond with my husband and our two boys um, behind our house. And Sharice and I used to figure skate when we were children in our teen years, but I, I haven't figure skated much since then. And I had this idea, Gabe and Bodhi, do you want to see me do an axle? For those of you who may not have figure skated, it's the hardest of the options for jump. And as I stepped forward with all of my momentum, my blade got stuck in a rut. I fell and dislocated my knee. (laughs) Ambulance had to come and pick me up, take me to the hospital to relocate it. I'm a slow learner at this idea that, yes, we're spiritual beings, but we are still in human form. (laughs) And we need to take care of our bodies while we're here. Amen to that. This was so hard for me to understand because from like a spiritual perspective. I'm a Taurus. I'm very earth-centered. I'm very grounded. I don't get into the airspace where I'm not aware of my body unless I'm specifically meditating to do that. I was like, Krista, I don't even get it. How? (laughs) And I said, the axle? I like am very active and I go skating quite often and I don't attempt that, you know? So it's just so fascinating too, just the difference in human orientation. Yeah. And our personalities, right? Like I'm confident, probably overly confident in most things I do in my life. And I'm like, you know what? I got this. Let's do an axle. So I created a bit of a comedy sketch out of it. And I sent Chris a card. The card had a sloth on it. and It said, take everything slowly. And then I also said, rest up so you can quickly return to training for the 2026 Pond Olympics. I believe in you. You will conquer the axle. <laughs> <laughs> If we're not already humble, life will insist on it at some point. Exactly. Okay, sorry. So that was a a bit of a detour, but I would love, Eric, for you to share with our listeners, I guess, a bit more of your life's journey. Yeah. um, Well, I mentioned music really overtaking me at some point. Music was something I loved from as far back as I could remember, but my first and overwhelming priority in life was to learn how to play guitar. And it took a while for before I actually 
got my hands on one, but a cousin of mine loaned me a guitar that actually wasn't even his. I had to eventually return it very sadly, but it was a wonderful starter guitar to learn on. It was a guild. It was a high quality guitar, but it was small enough that it was perfect for me at that time, age 13, when I was first started taking lessons and music was all consuming. And, you know, I mentioned I worked at the record store and basically I pretty much spent all my earnings there. And it still remains a love of mine all these years later. I don't know how to be brief about this particular chapter, as it were, of my life's journey. But I became kind of, I had sort of a tunnel vision obsession with, with music and, and specifically with identifying as a musician and, and a singer-songwriter. It wasn't just like um, some sort of dream, like how oh, every kid wants to be a rock star kind of thing. Maybe there were elements of that to it. But in addition to that, there was a real passion, a curiosity just for this whole process of songwriting, which seemed to me like magic. It seems to me almost like a, a supernatural thing to be able to do, to do well. I started with my own tentative experiments with songwriting and got deeper into it. It reached a point where it was, talk about ego, my whole sense of identity and really honestly self-worth came from this identity that I had constructed of this is what I am and this is who I am. I am a singer-songwriter. And quick little detour, because I think it's relevant, is that the reason this appealed to me, or one of the reasons that I felt like this was the ideal career for me, was that it satisfied two very distinct and seemingly almost opposing aspects of my personality. So in order to be a great writer, I think of any kind, I think it requires a certain amount of solitariness, being alone with yourself and your muse, as it were. You have to have a tolerance for that. Not just a tolerance, but a uh, a need for that. A hunger. Yeah. And a certain amount of like feeling at home in, w- with that. A really great writer is a great observer of the human condition. And so in order to observe, you know, you have to be kind of almost a little bit removed. It satisfied this side of me that was very, to your point, I mean, from day one, as far as I remember, very philosophical, very curious, and interested in exploring my own feelings. Most of my songwriting was very much about self-expression and expressing how I felt. Because a lot of the music that spoke to me most did that. And what it did was it made you feel like when you hear something that expresses how you feel. Yeah. It is so glorious. Even this is why like the blues is so popular and even quote like depressing music because it connects. It makes you go, yes, ah, that's how I'm feeling. You know, like there's a solace that you feel, oh, I'm not alone. Like someone else has has like perfectly encapsulated it into this really appealing form. It's nourishing. Even if the content is disturbing or dark or sad, there's something very cathartic about it and helpful about it. So music for me, it wasn't just an escape and it it wasn't just entertainment. Music for me was therapy, hope, possibility for like transcending pain and also self-expression and also connection. It was everything. <laughs> wow. Layered, which is both beautiful and terrifying. A little dangerous. Yeah, because all of those things, so now music became everything to you. Your job, your identity, how you connected, how you felt, how you emoted. That's so interesting. 
Well, and especially the self-worth part, but but just to finish this thought, the singer-songwriter thing, it's like the part of me that was very introspective, that was very, um, and an observer, the writing part of that gelled with that side of me. But at the same time, I also always was very extroverted, outgoing, loved being the center of attention, not not like totally in an obnoxious way necessarily, like uh, like I'm not not doing anything to get attention, but I definitely like was at home on stage and I was at home in a performance environment. Cool. So this weird thing like allowed you to to satisfy both of those aspects of myself. Well, this is exactly what I want to do, what I should be doing. So it put me on a path and there's a lot I could say about that, but I think for the for our purposes now I'll just say that the part that was unhealthy was this sense of identity and sense of worth being completely tied to this construct like I am this and this is what makes me worthwhile and without this I'm nothing. And that's a wrap. Part one of our conversation with Eric. We hope you've enjoyed the fascinating dive into the psyches of Eric, Chris, and I. Part two will be released shortly, maximum two weeks, fingers crossed. Part two takes a deeper look into Eric's career as a musician, life lessons and learnings, including the details that have led him to the human he is today as a coach, a mentor, a husband, a son. So please join us for part two shortly. Take care, everyone. Bye. Hi, my name is Bodie. I hope you stay safe. Hi, my name is Gabe. I hope you have a great day. Audio production by Joel Vargasi at Lewis Studios.